You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. evil's troubles appear to be the work of an international law enforcement operation. Other gangs have noticed, and they're looking a little spooked. Questions are raised about the efficacy of surveillance tool export controls. Caleb Barlow has cybersecurity considerations for CEOs and boards. Our guest is Mickey Boudet of Transmit Security on the movement to do away with passwords. And if you liked Y2K, you're going to love 1024. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, October 22nd, 2021. We close the week with what appears to be some good news. Speculation that our evil's second disappearance may have been induced by law enforcement activity seems to have been borne out. Reuters reported late yesterday that our evil's difficulties in re-establishing itself, including its loss of keys and loss of control over its servers, were due to a concerted effort by law enforcement, intelligence, and military agencies with the cooperation of private security companies to knock the gang offline. One feature of the operation appears to have been the compromise of Arivel's backups, an aspect of the operation some who commented found ironic, given the attention ransomware gangs try to pay to backups. A representative of the U.S. National Security Council said only, according to computing, a whole-of-government ransomware effort, including disruption of ransomware infrastructure and actors. So, whole-of-government which implies both civilian and military agencies and organizations, but also an allied action. The operation was also international, with participation by other unspecified but like-minded countries. And so, efforts to build an international consensus against ransomware may be bearing some first fruits in the action against Star Evil. The cyber underworld will adapt and is already showing signs of doing so, security researchers note. One immediate response, noticed by security firm Profero and reported in the record, is some shifting of ill-gotten assets. The way in which the authorities wrapped our evil around their fingers clearly gave Darkseid, for one, the willies. That particular ransomware gang early this morning began moving its assets— shifting about 107 Bitcoin, that amounts to around $6.8 million, from the wallet where they'd been cashed. Omri Segev Moyal, CEO and co-founder of Profero, told The Record, quote, 
Basically, since 2 a.m. UTC, whoever controlled the wallet started to break the Bitcoin into smaller chunks. At the time of this writing, the attackers split the funds into seven wallets of 7 to 8 Bitcoin, and the rest, 38 Bitcoin, is stored in the following wallet. How effective that will prove in keeping the dark side stash safe from compromise and confiscation remains to be seen, but it's worth noting that such shifts aren't invisible and aren't necessarily beyond the reach of the authorities. Good hunting to them. Other recent trends among the gangs are also interesting. We saw yesterday that Kaspersky researchers looked specifically at Russophone Gangland, the criminal market leader, and found increased division of labor, commodification, and C2C marketing. The criminal supply chain now extends to business email compromise. Palo Alto Networks Unit 42 has found that BEC is now being offered as a service. In this, Unit 42 told ZDNet, BEC is following the path of ransomware. Quote, Similar to ransomware, we're seeing an increased number of attackers getting into BEC, and we're also seeing it mature into, like ransomware as a service, BEC as a service. They're becoming more tech-savvy. They've been in the commodity space and are starting to include publicly disclosed vulnerabilities. They're becoming more professional. End quote. Such professionalization is consistent with the ways in which criminal markets tend to imitate legitimate markets. It's also been seen in the deployment, which we discussed earlier, of front companies by criminal gangs like Fin7. These are recruiting gambits, attempts to recruit staff with conventional promises of regular hours, high pay, and the like. No word on benefits like a 401k or a health plan, but who knows? Those might be coming too. The Intercept has a long essay on the use of NSO Group's Pegasus tool by Moroccan security services against that kingdom's dissidents. The surveillance isn't confined, the Intercept says, to Pegasus infestations of targeted smartphones, but rather represent a general policy of inducing a sense of general surveillance, a kind of panopticon, into the daily lives of the kingdom's subjects. Morocco's government denies using Pegasus or other tools for such widely criticized purposes. Restricting the export of tools that might be abused is one purpose, Decipher writes, of the U.S. Commerce Department's interim final rule, which the Bureau of Industry and Security published at midweek. The rule is intended to keep surveillance technology out of the hands of repressive regimes, with U.S. rivals Russia and China figuring prominently among such bad actors. The rule has met with mixed reviews, and not because people are in favor of aiding repression. Indeed, some of those who've expressed reservations, like the Electronic Frontier Foundation, typically have a libertarian take on technology. In this case, however, there are concerns that the rule might be framed in excessively broad terms and might punish or at least inhibit legitimate security research. There are also concerns, summarized in a piece appearing in ThreatPost, that the controls themselves might also be anemic, ineffectual in keeping potentially misused technology out of the hands of ill-willed state actors. There are familiar dual-use problems here. Technologies with perfectly legitimate uses may be abused. Penetration testing tools are a good example. By their very nature, they can be, and have been, abused by criminals and intelligence services. Finally, CISA warned yesterday that a GPS daemon rollover bug 
will hit network time protocol servers this Sunday, October 24th, rolling the date back 1,024 weeks to March 2002, with predictable disruption to services using NTP. It's a punning bug, 1024, like Sunday's date. Get it? Listeners of a certain age will be reminded of the Y2K bug, the millennial apocalypse that, in the end, turned out to be more of a whimper than a bang. But this particular problem, while not to be ignored, is fixable, and so shouldn't be exaggerated either. The problem affects only GPSD versions 3.2 through 3.22. The fix is an obvious one, upgrade systems to version 3.23 or later, and that version has been available for months. CISA recommends that concerned users consult the SANS Institute's account of the bug for more background and information. Take a look and upgrade if you need to. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. Okay, so real quick, name a part of your everyday computing experience you would love to see put out to pasture. For me, it's probably email, but I'll bet a good number of you in the security world are thinking passwords. They are all too often too easy to guess, reused from site to site, and a prime target in data breaches and business email compromise. 
Mickey Boudet is CEO and founder of Transmit Security, where they are working to change the password business by getting rid of them entirely. So I would say that today we're still very much in a password world. And uh, the problem with passwords is pretty much clear. It, it has actually it has two aspects to it. The first one is on the security side. And the second one is on the customer experience side. And both of them are getting worse from, you know, over time. So from security perspective, we know the statistics, we see the attacks every day, but um, more than 80% of data breaches today are due to account takeover. And account takeover is typically done by stealing passwords. And stealing passwords is becoming easier and easier over time just because the techniques for stealing passwords from phishing to malware to social engineering are becoming more sophisticated. And um, it's, it's much easier to get users to reveal their passwords when they have so many passwords and so many interactions with so many systems. So we're seeing a constant increase in the number of attacks, in the sophistication of these attacks, and obviously in the damage that passwords are uh, eventually causing to the industry. Do you feel as though we're having success in in getting folks to adopt things like password managers and then, of course, multi-factor authentication? Well, the problem with password managers is that you can't really enforce them, definitely not on consumers. So it's up to the consumer to decide whether they want to use a password manager, which one they use, how they use it, and how to make sure to uh, that fraudsters are unable to steal access to their password manager, which is obviously the uh, the worst thing that could happen for uh, the consumer. From a two-factor authentication perspective, this is actually something that you can enforce on your consumers. Uh, the problem with that is the price you're paying in terms of customer experience. So the more restrictions, the more constraints you put on consumers when it comes to password, you know, the the worse the um, customer experience is. And there is a direct correlation between customer experience and business results for consumer-facing applications. So you would see that consumers, for example, that forget their passwords or that they're faced with a two-factor authentication every time they try to log in or transact or, or you know, buy something, they're less likely to use the, the services and they're more likely to look for alternatives. So uh, it's a very delicate balance when it comes to passwords. So what's next then? I mean, if we're going to do away with passwords, how are we going to handle secure logins? Well, actually, the technology has evolved significantly in terms of password alternatives or alternatives to passwords. It used to be just one-time authentication using links that you're getting over email or OTP codes. 
both of, of them are not very convenient and also not very secure for the uh, for the long term. But over the past, I would say five years, we're seeing an increase in the number of devices that support biometric authentication, on-device authentication, on-device biometrics, which is the biometric readers that are embedded in the device itself. So this could be fingerprint authentication or face recognition. And with that, um, our ability to provide a much more secure login process, as well as a much more convenient login process, has increased significantly. The quality of these readers, both in terms of security and in terms of the customer's um, experience, is increasing from one generation to another generation in a very fast way. So from that perspective, we're seeing for the first time ever a technology that is not just secure or not just convenient, but is both highly secure and highly convenient. That's Mickey Boudet from Transmit Security. There's a lot more to this conversation. If you want to hear the full interview, head on over to CyberWire Pro and sign up for Interview Selects, where you'll get access to this and many more extended interviews. And joining me once again is our CyberWire contributor, Caleb Barlow. Uh, Caleb, it's always great to have you back. You know, I I wanted to check in with you today because you have been in the unique position of being both a security professional, but also the CEO of a public company. And I want to check in with you. What is the reality of that? What sort of things do you have to worry about from a security perspective when you're sitting in that top seat? Well, you know, Dave, I recently finished the role as the CEO of a public company, which, let's face it, gives me a little more latitude to talk about what you've got to think about in that seat than when you're in it, right? So <laughs> right. the responsibilities of being a public company CEO or on the board of a public company are no joke. But a lot of these same governance factors apply to any company. And it's a bit different of a perspective than, you know, you might have at a small startup But I think there's a lot we can learn from that. So now that I've got a little bit more freedom to talk about it, I kind of laid out five things that you've really got to think about at kind of that level if you're a CEO or a board member or supporting one of them from a cybersecurity perspective. Hmm. So first and foremost, you need a CISO. And if you're a company of any size nowadays, you're going to need a CISO. Now, here's the really key thing. Where do they report? And we've seen a lot of change in the industry over on this over the last few years. And I think the best practice now is really not to have the CISO report into the CIO, which many of them do, or report into the CFO. And the reason for this is governance. And you, you've got to understand that the CIO is responsible for you know, delivery and performance of IT services for a given cost. But the CISO's role is really a bit different in that they're responsible for managing risk and consequence. And that security budget, well, it's got to be reviewed relative to the corporate risk, not as part of the IT budget. And you've got to determine that appropriate risk threshold, most likely at the board level. What other things do you have on your list? 
Well, the second thing is almost every company out there has gone out and got some sort of, you know, security assessment, but it's time to take that up a notch. And, you know, there's new tools and a lot of new services from companies out there offering security validation assessments. Now, what these are, and, and I would really encourage this actually to be contracted at the board level, not from the CISO or the CIO. Now, granted, they should be involved and supporting it and everything else, but it is important from a governance perspective that a board of directors actually goes out and is seen as contracting this directly. Now, what a validation assessment will do is actually launch an inoculated attack. I mean, let's say it's a malware you know, attack or a ransomware incident or something like that, and actually keeps a log of what happened at what time. And it does this by looking at the logs. So, okay, we launched a fictitious WannaCry incident. We see that the IPS detected at a given point. The firewall detected it. Did it correlate properly or not in the SIM? How long did it take for the SOC to recognize the issue? Maybe it was an outsourced vendor. It took them four hours. Eh, that's not too good. Did they open a ticket? How long did it take to open the ticket? Did they follow procedure? Did it disposition appropriately? You kind of get this, not even just the normal things you get in a security assessment, but you also get this timeline of when we tested your entire system, here's what the timeline looked like. And either it's green in that it matches exactly the way it should, or hey, there's a few red elements in here. You know, the guy that was on at two o'clock in the morning running your sock didn't notice this for four hours. What's wrong? Or the mm. SIM didn't correlate properly. It is so critical to do that level of assessment at a board level, because if you are breached, if you, you know, if a regulator does come on board, not only can you show you've done this work, but in addition to that, you can demonstrate that, hey, when we did this assessment, here were the results and here are the actions we took from it. Okay. What else is on your list? Well, hey, we know we need to drive security into the culture. We've all talked about this before, but I want you to do it at the board level, right? So what does that mean at the board level? That means not only regularly having security and as a topic on your board meetings, but a couple of things that are now best practice. You get past the green, yellow, red lights where the CISO comes in and tells you everything's green, right? You've got to get into these becoming more educational sessions where you're talking about you know, not the Harvey balls and the traffic lights, but getting into talking about what threats do you see, actor, campaign, motivation, maybe that we're up against, educating that board on the latest threats. Remember, it's important from a governance perspective for a board to show not only are they paying attention to cybersecurity, but they're getting educated on cybersecurity. And that's something CISOs have to take on as part of their charter is to make sure that their board is constantly getting educated and coming up to speed. I've seen some great practices recently. You know, one large cloud company ensures that their senior leadership team has a standing meeting with all of their security you know, leadership on a regular reoccurring basis. In this case, it was weekly. That way, they know that if there's a security issue that needs to get elevated to senior management, it can and without multiple levels to ensure transparency. Um, hmm. I've, I've even seen, and lawyers hate this, but I think it makes a ton of sense. I've even seen situations where all security incidents are exposed to the board level so that board members have the ability to kind of peruse not only what happened, but what was the corrective action. Again, it's important that a board can demonstrate that not only were they making decisions and having the meetings, but they were getting educated and staying on top of these things. Interesting. 
Uh, one more on your list? One more. Our security documentation, Dave, it, it kind of sucks. I mean, <laughs> I'm sorry. We all know it. It's just us talking here. But it's time to up the security documentation to that of the level of what you'd see your CFO deals with, or if you're in a manufacturing world, kind of Six Sigma or uh, you know ISO. Security documentation is really lacking out there. And why this is so important is when you're breached, when there's litigation, you need to be able to demonstrate that you said what you did and you did what you said. Um, and, and what I tell people to think about all the time is the volcano test. If one of your critical people fell into a volcano, is the security documentation robust enough that a new hire off the street, you know, with the right skills and training, could figure it out and could recreate your environment? If it's not, then you've got some work to do. All right. Well, a good list for sure. Uh, Caleb Barlow, thanks for joining us. That's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Be sure to check out this weekend's Research Saturday and my conversation with Doel Santos from Palo Alto Network's Unit 42. We're discussing their recent report, Ransomware Groups to Watch, Emerging Threats Research. That's Research Saturday. Do check it out. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karpf, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week.